The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court will take another look at Republican Senator Ted Cruz's challenge to federal campaign finance rules that limit the repayment of candidate loans to their campaigns. A three-judge district court panel found that federal rules dictating when and how much a campaign can pay back to the candidate violated the First Amendment, and the Federal Election Commission is appealing that ruling. Joining me is campaign finance expert Meredith McGeehy. There's this federal law that places a $250,000 limit on the repayment of personal loans. So Senator Cruz basically lent his campaign $260,000 to test the constitutionality of the law? Correct. The challenge here is pretty straightforward, and it is really what Senator Cruz has often done, which is try to set up a situation where they really want to kind of pick off provision by provision different parts of federal campaign finance law that govern how members of Congress, candidates for Congress run, and how the president and vice president run. It's always important to remember that this does not apply to state candidates or local candidates. This is really a law that applies to federal candidates. And Mr. Cruz has long opposed any restrictions on money in politics. So this is part of his political legacy. Is there any reason why the law placed the limit at $250,000? Is it sort of arbitrary? Well, it was a decision that was made by Congress, which the Supreme Court has often said they have the right to do and make judgments. Said, okay, you can give yourself, uh, loan yourself some money to run for Congress and then, uh, you know, be able to pay it back. But there is a danger here. There is a balance. Uh, between that ability to spend and the contribution limits, which were enacted after Watergate, which are meant to protect against corruption and the appearance of corruption. And in this particular case, this payback that we're talking about is potentially some of the most corrupting money in politics because it goes from a special interest donor right into the politician's pocket. And for the special interest, there's no sure way to buy access and influence than with a contribution 
to adjust elected or reelected uh, office holder who can legally pocket the money. So this ranks up there in terms of uh, getting gratitude from a politician. Explain what the district court panel found. Well, the district panel uh, decided uh, this was three judges led by a Trump appointee. I think there were two Trump appointees and one Obama appointee. And they decided that this was a limit on an individual's ability to spend as much money as they want to run for federal office. The court has struck down limits on the ability to spend your own money because they say you can't corrupt yourself. But this is a different situation, and in my view, the lower court got it wrong. They kept talking about the Millionaire's Amendment that was previously struck down that tried to limit what people can spend of their own money. This is precisely a situation where special interests are basically pointing to a door open, flashing neon light that says, here, give this, uh, you know, you know the outcome of the campaign. So give this politician money and uh, they're going to use it to basically put it in their pocket and repay themselves. So it's a very different dynamic. And I think the lower court got it wrong in trying to make it similar to or through the lens of restrictions on how much you can spend of your own money. So the Biden administration urged the justices to take the case. And they said in part that Cruz's injury was self-inflicted because his campaign had more than $2 million on hand after the election and could have repaid him with those funds as long as it did so within 20 days. Does that affect the case that this is self-inflicted and that Ted Cruz wants to test the constitutionality of the law? Well, it's clear that was the purpose. I mean, this was set up by Senator Cruz to test it and to get to the judges that are sympathetic. And of course, we've had in the last several years um, the notion that we have kind of judges that only apply the law in a very kind of even manner has been challenged as more and more judges have been appointed with eyes toward how they ideologically view things like money in politics or abortion even. And so, you know, this is decided by Republican judges through a Republican lens. And uh, that lens is restrictions on money in politics are, are unacceptable restrictions on speech. And there's in the other lens, which is the more democratic lens in these days, which is that uh, restrictions on the spending of money, giving money to other people, particularly contributing, has the potential for corruption and the appearance of corruption. So there's a very... A clear, decisive ideological split within the political parties, and that ideological split is reflected in the judiciary. So the Biden administration admitted that the loan repayment limit imposes at most a modest burden on First Amendment rights. So it does admit, should it not have admitted that there is a burden on First Amendment rights, even if it's modest? Well, when the Supreme Court originally decided the post-Watergate decisions, you know, and, and Buckley v. Vallejo, they've always said there is a balancing test. So, you you know, the, the Congress set contribution limits at a certain amount. And this, you know, it started out with $1,000 for an election, let's say. That was pretty arbitrary. It was just saying, what do we think, you know, 1000 for the general for the primary, 1000 for the general. Now, the court has said 
if that limit is set too low, courts have said, oh, $100 too low, you really can't get your message out. But they realize in all the jurisprudence that has been in this area that there is a balancing test. You need to go out and raise money to get your message out, given that we have a privately financed system. But at some point, there is this danger of corruption and the appearance of corruption. And so that number is a judgment for the politicians to make in Congress. And the Supreme Court, since the 1970s, had been very, very consistent on that reasoning. Yes, it's a bit arbitrary, but we this is Congress's role to make these arbitrary decisions, as long as they're not crazy, basically. <laughs> so, it's, you know, it, yeah, there's an arbitrary number, $5,000 from a political action committee. Well, that is a number that the Congress decides on in its wisdom. So $5,001 is viewed as corrupting. So that is in the nature of law. It's like, a, you know, used to be in the days in banks where took out $10,000, then you got a report to the Treasury. So if you went through 9999 you did not. So Congress makes these kinds of decisions all the time. The question here was very clearly that Senator Cruz believes that the, the majority currently in the Supreme Court is sympathetic to his view because the majority was appointed by a Republican president. And so he wants to get these cases up before that court with the expectation that they will agree with him. A spokesman for Cruz called the court's decision to hear the case great news and asserted that the existing FEC rules benefit incumbent politicians by making it harder for challenges to run for office. Are they serious about that? Because the court taking the case might be taking it to reverse. I mean, they well, won below. It, it, they won below. Here's the here's the, the bet, as I mentioned previously. The bet that Cruz is making is that there is now a, a majority on the court that is more sympathetic to his view of campaign finance law. And if you look at what the court did, for example, in the Citizens United case, they took a case that was relatively narrow, whether or not a movie made, you know, qualified as kind of an expenditure. And then they took that case and suddenly decided that corporations had the right to spend treasury funds to influence the outcome of elections. So they took a very narrow case and did something that courts usually don't do, which was not live by the principle of, you know, the sorry decisis, the you know, the kind of prior decisions hold, they basically threw out prior decisions and made new law. And that's what I think Mr. Cruz is hoping uh, they'll do in this case, is they'll take something that is a relatively narrow question, and they'll be even more expansive and perhaps even strike down other contribution limits, which is something he's been asking the court to do in various and sundry ways uh, since he's been in office. Do, so he's uh, really making a bet on the, on the, where the Supreme Court will end up. I don't think he's assuming they will reverse. I think he's assuming they, be more, they may be more expansive. Do you know how the newer justices who weren't on the court during Citizens United, do you know what their take on campaign finance has been? Well, uh, we don't know a lot uh, in terms of their records, like, uh, but we know some. We also probably know the most important thing, 
is that during the Trump presidency, uh, the, the person in charge of vetting judges that came into the Supreme Court or the appellate court or the district court was Don McGahn, who used to be on the Federal Election Commission and is, you know, a, a very close political ally of Mitch McConnell. And so we know that each and every one of the judges that have come up in those years has been vetted for their position on this by Don McGahn. And that is a position that is similar to Mr. Cruz's, which is to remove as many restrictions as possible on campaign finance as they can achieve uh, with the Supreme Court. So the expectation here is that the majority right now will be sympathetic to Mr. Cruz because they were vetted by a White House that supported getting rid of most of the restrictions. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Meredith. That's campaign finance expert Meredith McGeehee. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. President Joe Biden may be struggling to get his expansive federal government overhaul into law, but he's on a record pace in another area judicial nominations. Biden has outpaced all his predecessors since Richard Nixon with 14 district and circuit court confirmations, thanks in part to a focus on blue states. And the nominees reflect Biden's push to diversify the courts in terms of demographics and professional experience. 
Joining me is Carl Tobias, a professor at the University of Richmond Law School. Explain some of the reasons why Biden has been able to move so quickly on these nominations. What Biden has done is taken a page from Mitch McConnell's playbook, uh, or pages, focusing on low-hanging fruit, if you will, and moving very quickly. And so, like a laser, the White House has focused on the blue state vacancies, which, of course, uh, the Republicans pretty much ignored until the very end of Trump's administration. And so a very disproportionate percentage of vacancies when Biden came into office were from blue states. And so it's quite natural that he would focus on those. And of course, they're easier because he works with those senators very closely, knows a number of them, and they've made very strong recommendations in line with uh, the December letter from the White House counsel to senators requesting that the nominees be diverse in terms of ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and especially experience. And that's exactly what you're seeing recommended by the senators to the White House and the types of people being nominated, which we saw last week in the eighth slate of nominees forwarded. Is it going to slow down necessarily when he turns his attention to the red states? It depends on the red state, depends on the home state senators and how much they're willing to work with the White House, depends on how much the White House is willing to work with them. But I would offer a caveat to last week's nomination of three strong candidates for the Northern District of Ohio, and that is Senator Portman is up, is retiring, I think, in 2022, so his seat will be up. But he and Sherrod Brown have worked very well together. In fact, during the Trump administration, they were able to agree um, using, I think, a bipartisan selection panel on many nominees. So they kept the vacancies filled. So it's not a good test. I think a better test might be where you have two uh, very red state Republican senators, for example, Texas. Uh, Let's see what happens with the vacancy there or other states where uh, you have extremely conservative senators, uh, as opposed to somebody like Portman, who has worked closely with Brown to be sure the vacancies are filled in their, their state. So now let's talk about the recent nominations. He selected the American Civil Liberties Union's top voting rights lawyer, Dale Ho. Tell us a little bit about Ho. Well, he has headed up that voting rights project uh, for a long time at the ACLU, I want to say almost a decade, and he's brought some extraordinarily important cases and won a number of them. Probably the most famous one was in 2020, challenging the citizenship question that Trump wanted to put into the census and he took it to the Supreme Court and won it. But there was a big case uh, out of North Carolina, uh, which went to the Fourth Circuit on uh, voting restrictions that were imposed by the Republican legislature in North Carolina. And the Fourth Circuit opinion said that the legislature had focused on black voters with surgical precision in order to uh, dampen the force of their votes 
uh, in elections and so overturned uh, a number of those restrictions imposed by the North Carolina legislature. And uh, he argued that case as well in the Fourth Circuit. And so he is one of the foremost people of his generation in the voting rights area, in the immigration area, and in cutting-edge litigation around uh, voting rights. Uh, He's young. He was nominated for the Southern District of New York, uh, which is an excellent court. He clerked there, uh, clerked on the New York Court of Appeals, which is the high court in New York, um, and has, you know, really a splendid record. Plus, he's a very nice person. I've met him on occasions. We had him here for a uh, symposium, and he talked about voting rights, um, and he's written a fair amount of law review and other kinds of pieces, but been very active in litigating uh, major cases. Because of his record arguing on the side of voting rights, do you think there'll be some severe questioning by Republicans on the committee? Well, let's look at the quality of his uh, work and see uh, the cases he's won and how difficult they've been. Uh, And I think they might try to do that, but I don't think they'll succeed. Um, My guess is the Democrats will all vote for uh, him uh, in committee, and so at worst it could come out on a 10-10 vote. But my guess is Lindsey Graham, who has been voting for um, people who are well qualified, uh, as Ho is, are likely to vote yes. Um, I'd be surprised if he voted no on on Ho. We'll see what the hearing looks like. But I don't think there's anything in his record, uh, when you take an honest appraisal of it, that would make him disqualified to sit on the Southern District. So how uncommon is it to have judges with civil rights backgrounds? Well, it it's uncommon in the Trump administration to be sure, even though Chuck Grassley says that a number of the appellate nominees and confirmees did have civil rights litigation experience, but from a very different perspective than uh, a number of Democratic nominees. But there have been um, civil rights advocates, Thurgood Marshall, for example, Um, a number of people who were at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund have served, for example, on the Southern District or Eastern District in New York, and Spotswood Robinson from Richmond, who worked on some of the Brown cases in Virginia and the Fourth Circuit and the Supreme Court, uh, was appointed to the D.C. District and to the D.C. Circuit. Uh, so there have been uh, a number of people with civil rights backgrounds who've been involved in civil rights litigation. And Biden has been you know, very forthright about that and saying he wants people with diverse experiences. And, of course, voting rights is one of the critical issues Um, given what Republican legislatures are doing now by way of curtailing voting rights. So the three nominees to the Northern District of Ohio marked the first of Biden's district court nominees to come from a state with a Republican senator. Are they similar to the rest of the Biden nominees? Well, to some extent, I mean, I think the three do bring diversity of experience. One um, had been a federal defender, uh, Charles Fleming, 
Judge Ruiz is, I think he's a magistrate judge in um, the Northern District. And then Bridget Meehan Brennan has been acting U.S. attorney. So I assume that she comes from a prosecutorial background. So there's, there's some balance there for Republicans. And I don't think that they're going to be opposed when Portman, I think, has been very supportive of, of them. And that go, should go a long way with the members of the committee. But you're getting the diversity that, um, especially of experience, that um, Biden pledged he would bring in his nominations and appointments. Now, let's talk about Biden's nominee for the U.S. attorney in Massachusetts, Rachel Rollins. What can you tell us about her? Well, she uh, was elected, I think, to be a district attorney in Massachusetts and has been involved in politics and the law in uh, Boston in that area for a long time. And so um, we'll see. The Republicans were vociferous in their opposition to her in the committee discussion, which was almost unprecedented. By and large, what has happened traditionally going back for decades is that the home state senators recommend the U.S. attorney nominees to the White House. The White House usually signs off because they trust the home state senators to bring forward well-qualified people, and there's a lot of deference paid to the home state senators in that context. They don't have hearings. All the U.S. attorney nominees are vetted by the committee, and if there are no controversial issues, then they go to the committee. The committee didn't even have any discussion of any of the other nominees in her group, seven or so others, or any that came before, like 15 other Biden nominees for U.S. attorneys, but then had a lengthy discussion, and she was held over a week before they actually discussed her nomination. And then Republicans were extremely critical of her, labeling her some kind of progressive prosecutor, in quotes. And so that was the type of concern that they voiced in the committee. And then she received a 11-11 party line vote. So she still could be confirmed because Schumer could send her on for a final vote by discharging her from committee, which he did for two other DOJ high-level nominees, Kristen Clark, you might remember for Civil Rights Division, and Benita Gupta for Associate Attorney General, the third-ranking person in the department. Was the Republican objection to her, she had had a list of crimes she wouldn't prosecute, was that their main objection? That was one of them, but there were a number of others. And there has been a lot of ferment about the question of prosecutorial discretion in light of George Floyd and other events that have happened in the last year and a half. And so some of that came to bear in the discussion in committee. But there was a lot of back and forth, especially from the Republicans, being highly critical of what she might do. Tom Cotton called her a quote-unquote radical pro-criminal prosecutor, and similar language from Ted Cruz and others. And normally for U.S. attorney nominees, it's just typically a voice vote. Here they held an actual vote? Yes, absolutely. 
That's exactly right. And Chair Durbin pointed out that 85 of President Trump's U.S. attorney nominees had exactly that same treatment. And I think there were only votes on two or three of them, something like that. So that gives you a sense. And more of his nominees than Biden's, by a percentage, were more controversial, I think, in terms of their records and what they promised to do as U.S. attorney. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Remember that half a billion dollar mistake Citibank made in 2020? One of the biggest banking errors in recent memory. An employee error caused it to mistakenly pay out more than $900 million of its own money to a group of lenders expecting an interest payment on behalf of Revlon. Citigroup unexpectedly lost the first round of the legal battle to recover half a billion dollars when federal judge Jesse Furman ruled in February that 10 asset managers for the lenders did not not have to return the $504 million City mistakenly sent to them because they shouldn't have been expected to know that the transfer was an error. Now Citigroup is asking the Second Circuit Court of Appeals to fix its error. Joining me is Anat Allen-Beck, a professor at Case Western Reserve University Law School. Anat, start by explaining the lower court's decision. Let me start with setting the stage, okay? So what's going on here? First, let's talk about the industry. We're talking about the corporate debt market. 
And um, we're talking about corporate debt contracts. And what happened here was, you know, if you think of everything can go wrong, things went wrong. There was a, a mistake that happened. It wasn't even on Revlon's side, but it was on the side of Citibank. And that accident is a $1 billion payoff that was sent to Revlon's distressed creditors. And again, it wasn't done by Revlon, but rather by an administrative agent for the loan, Citibank. As a result, several uh, lenders actually returned the cash back, but others did not. So federal court Judge Furman decided to actually go with the lenders. Some thought that this was a dramatic opinion. Furman decided that the lenders should be able to keep the, the funds that were transferred by mistake. He applied this doctrine. We call it an equitable doctrine. It's known as the discharge for value defense. And as a result, basically, the lenders could keep this windfall. And now the case is up for appeal. And so it's interesting because this case would have a lot of influence on how contracts are going to be drafted in the future. And overall, I think it's definitely going to have an impact on the corporate debt market. Would you say that the judge's opinion came as a surprise to most people in the industry? It's not that it came just as a surprise to most people in the industry, I guess. There's a movement in the law, especially in contract laws, law and econ, law and economics. And I think that some prominent scholars in law and economics disagreed with the opinion. They disagreed with the results. I'm sure that there's other scholars that have the opposite opinion, right? Like like anything else, when we're professors, we can disagree about certain things. So personally, when I interviewed with you last year, I told you that I think there's a chance that this might happen. I was very surprised. The Citibank was not willing to, you know, come to some sort of a bargain, but rather continue with this lawsuit. And perhaps that is because of this notion, again, like I said, some prominent, including some of my friends that teach contract law and corporate finance, who believe uh, they're the opposite. They think that Citibank should have gotten the money back. But I think that there are interesting policy and legal questions. And I, I think it's a close call. I don't think that this is a, such a you know, slum dunk. I would think that the uh, Court of Appeals might not even make a decision on this because of that. I mean, you say that they didn't negotiate. Would the lenders have been willing to negotiate with Citibank when they had the I'm, money in hand? I'm not sure. I, that's actually a fair point. And that is, once you have the money in hand, why would you want to give it back, especially you know, with everything that was going on in the background. So you're absolutely right that perhaps they wouldn't be willing to negotiate, but I don't know if any of it happened in the background or not, you know? If I was representing Citibank, I would have tried. So let's talk about the argument at the appeals court. What were some of the issues? So there are several legal issues on appeal, okay? One is whether the defense that I just told you about, the DFV defense, whether that applies only when the debt is due and payable. Again, what happened was that Judge Furman, he used this obscure equitable doctrine. And he's also um, looking at a, a very well-known case in New York. The case is called Bank Warms. The district court concluded that the discharge for value defense barred Citibank's recovery, even though this particular debt was not due for an additional years. So this debt was not due until, I believe, 2023. 
And despite the fact that the defendants in this case were on uh, what we call inquiry notice, that the transfer was made in error. So despite these matters, the judge still decided for the lenders. Citibank is arguing whether this defense applies here, where we know that these lenders, these recipients of the funds, had no entitlement to think that they really should have gotten the funds. Why? Because when they got it, which was last year, it wasn't 2023 yet. And then the burden of proof. Was there good faith? Was there actual or constructive notice that the payment was made in error? So there's multiple legal issues. One of the judges on the panel indicated that they could also kick the case over to New York's highest court for its views. Mm -hmm. Why? That's a great question, and I, and I saw that that was happening, and the council objected whether they're going to do that to determine the facts, right? Because we also have policy issues that are happening here, and I think that the highest court in New York, which is the Court of Appeals, is going to have more w- wiggle room to decide on policy issues, what is fair here. So I think that's, um, that's why they would do that, if they would decide to do that. One of the things that Citibank's lawyer said is that all of these red flags should have led the lenders to ask any one of the million questions that would have led to Mm. discovery of the mistake. Is that true to a certain extent? Well, I think it depends who you ask. What's a a red flag to you, right? And then what's customary in practice? And I think that's where the lawyers were also arguing as to what kind of notice is customary, is prepayment customary, and if so, how and when and in which kind of situation. And so I think um, at least um, the attorney that was representing the lender, she said, well, prepayments are customary in the industry. And I think she also got some pushback on that as well saying, well, in what type of situations and whether you need to give notice or not, what kind of notice, who needs to give the notice, does Revlon need to give the notice? Does Citi's Bank need to give the notice? And what is the notice? Is the fact you got something after the fact, is that sufficient notice or not? So there's several things that are happening here. And what the court will need to decide is what makes economic sense for the future, because parties will use this opinion in the future. Or are we just going to take you know, fairness into account. What is fair in this particular case? Or are we going to look at each one of the lenders and see what happened? Did they get sufficient notice? Didn't get sufficient notice? What were the interactions with them? Did they use the funds, not do the funds? When I say by use, I mean, did they put them on their ledgers or not? And so there's really a lot going on here. I, I think it's a very close case here, and they're going to be going back and forth on these issues. And the court will need to decide on whether the lenders had reasonable notice with regards to the mistake. And then what is reasonable notice? Reasonable to whom? Also, what about bank wires, right? When you get a wire, are they final? Are they not final? What happens with mistakes? There's also case law on that. So there's a lot that's happening here. Is there any doubt about what would happen if a Citibank customer found that their mortgage, which had 10 years to run, suddenly they got a notice that it was paid? I wish. That's always my dream. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, wouldn't that customer be told by Citibank no? And what would happen there? That's a great question. And again, I think it really depends uh, on the case itself, because sometimes we say, well, 
is it final? Did you make plans? For example, if it's not a mortgage, what if you just got a million dollars all of a sudden in your account and you started spending that money? Can the bank take that back? They're going to try to take it back, can they? I'm not sure that they can. Sometimes we say, well, when a bank wire transfer, it's final. And we want it to be final. Why? Because we want to reduce the cost. If you look at it from that perspective, we want the bank to have the responsibility when they transfer a wire or tell a client when they transfer a wire, make sure you put in the correct number, right? Because we want to encourage people to use wires. If we're not going to make them efficient, if we're not going to make you rely on the fact that if you get money or if you transfer money that it's going to pass to whoever, then it's going to make it much more expensive to use wires. And so I think we do have this um, notion that when, for example, when a wire transfer, it should be final because we want to put the onus on the bank. The bank is the one that can monitor their actions. They're the ones that are sending all these wires. They're the ones that are doing all this. And that's why they make you sign, for example, when you do transfer a wire, basically a contract that says once you transfer the wire, that's it. You check that this is the correct number that you gave us and then it's final. Even if it went somewhere else, you sign the fact that once it's released from your account, it's final. And I think because these errors happen all the time, I think errors do happen. What degree and how many times, I'm not sure, but the cheapest cost avoider, right, if we look at that, is should be the bank. The bank should be the one that's keeping their uh, system in that scenario. They're the ones who are doing it, and they need to maintain that their system for the customer it's going to be much more expensive every time I get a wire to know, was this wire, did it get into my account by mistake or was it, you know, or was I supposed to get it? What if I'm a business and I get hundreds of millions of dollars into my account, right? Of course, I'm going to check where it came from, but, but I, I should assume that if I, that's what I do and that's my business that I'm going to be getting these, these amounts of money. How will the decision in this case impact the banking industry? That's a great question. I think it will have detrimental effects. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I think we need to ask ourselves, who do we want to put substantial costs on? We want to encourage uh, leveraged loan markets, right? We have them and we want to encourage other businesses, right? Other people to participate in them. And so if we allow the lenders to get this windfall? Are we basically saying that we're going to add more costs to people who are participating in, in leveraged loan markets? Who's um, the cheapest cost avoider? How do we want to allocate the risk, right? We want to discourage people or encourage them to enter into what we call collaborative contracting, right? Which are these types of forms of um, these uh, leveraged loans that they entered into. And so I think that we want to decrease uncertainty. And so, again, if we look at it from this lens of economic policy, right, law and economics, if we say to um, the lenders, you don't have to uh, return the funds, then as a result, would banks like Citibank not be willing to be an administrative agent in the future? Or are they going to charge more costs to, you know, doing that? Um, and and so I think um, there are really public policy questions that we need to ask ourselves. Or do we feel bad for 
you know, a bank like City that should have, you know, done a better job in policing what they did, right? There was, there's no question that there's a human error here, right? Um, but let's think about who's going to bear the brunt of this, who's going to bear the cost if, if City decides, you know what, it's not worth it for me, I'm going to charge more for this. Somebody's going to have to pay, right? So what we need to ask ourselves from a policy perspective is, who is it that we want to pay? And future contracts, definitely, if I was city, I would put in, uh, you know, provisions to uh, try to protect the bank. And I'm sure that you uh, will find different kind of, you know, provisions uh, in the future um, so that parties will be continuing to um, use these types of services. Do you think that manual processes at banks need to be automated? That's a good question as well. I think that's a hard one. I'm not sure if it's going to make a difference whether it's automated or, I mean, somebody has to put it in too. Even if it's automated, doesn't mean we're not going to be, you know, completely avoiding human errors. Somebody has to enter the information into the computer, right? And what if they add another zero or subtract, subtract a zero? What I really think that is, and I, and I would, and I'm sure it's happening now, is that the parties are going to negotiate, and it's really about risk allocation. And what's going to happen is that parties are going to negotiate provisions that say, what if this happens in the future? How do you, how would you act? Do you have to give the money back? What about the responsibility of of the administrative agent? And I'm sure you're going to, you know see more discussion on that with regards to contracting. Um, I'm not sure that automation is just going to solve this because even behind the machine, there's a human being that needs to enter the information, right? At the end, we still need somebody to do that. So mistakes can still happen. Thanks, Annette. That's Annette Allenbeck, a professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or go to www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.